Welcome back to part two of my January reading roundup. Sorry guys if you heard noise in the first part. I was moving my microphone a little too much, I think, so I'm gonna try not doing that. Um, we are going to now move on to part two of the books I read. I'm gonna try and fit them all here, hopefully, so <laughs> let's go. So the first one I have up is The Excalibur Curse by Kirsten White, which was a moving examination of power and responsibility in Arthurian legend. The Excalibur Curse is an epic and moving conclusion to Kirsten White's Camelot Rising trilogy, syllogy, uh, trilogy series. Guinevere has been kidnapped by the Northerners and left Camelot with Lancelot to protect them. While she heads to the Dark Queen with Mordred, Arthur heads towards a trap. On their journey, Guinevere must come to terms with her life before Merlin, whether she chooses passion with Mordred or duty with Arthur, and whether she's worthy of a life that was so violently taken and given to her. The first third of the book was necessary for the plot, but I didn't especially enjoy it because there was a lot of focus on Guinevere and Mordred's relationship. Love triangles will never be something I enjoy, but Kirsten White does a good job injecting just enough chemistry between the two. I found Mordred to be sweet, and it was nice to see some development from him in terms of his relationship to Morgana, which is his mother. There are a couple great moments with him in the book, including one where he tells Guinevere, I am forever loving things that cannot love me back. I wish we got more from Arthur, because I find his personality and mindset as a king to be rather interesting. He truly is a chivalrous man who will always put Camelot first, which makes him a perfect king in many ways. However, he isn't a perfect husband, and it's easy to see why Guinevere gravitated towards Mordred and continues to be torn about whether she can truly love a man that, at this moment and perhaps forever, will always put her second in his heart. I love that Guinevere really gets to reflect on her romantic relationships and the Excalibur curse and on what her attraction and feelings towards both men says about her. I do a little, I do feel a little cheated out of more Lancelot slash Guinevere contemplation though, despite it being there. And oh boy, it is there. I also like that there was a moment for Arthur to process or begin processing all the hurt that Merlin has done to him over the years. When Arthur compares Merlin's expectations and presence to chainmail that you don't realize is heavy until you shrug it off, I audibly said, Yes, Merlin's a great antagonist, and it's wonderful that White used the actions of the Merlin that you see in Arthurian legend as a base to build her version of him on, and to critique the ways in which self-righteous men never sacrifice themselves, but will always sacrifice others, especially women. White is so good at writing friendships too. Guinevere's burgeoning friendship with Fina was hilarious, and it was nice to see various women supporting Guinevere and pulling her out of the mindset she has during the latter half. It's a good lesson in balancing your guilt with the desire to continue living, because punishing yourself forever doesn't undo the harm done anyway. All in all, The Excalibur Curse was an emotionally satisfying conclusion to a trilogy that's a fresh take on the well-known story of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot. White writes, it's important to remember that stories have beginnings, ends, and all the characters that storytellers deem unworthy to mention. I'm grateful that she gave a voice to many of them. Yes, so this is going into spoiler territory now, but Lancelot, Guinevere, forever, best ship. Um, just their dedication, their understanding of each other as women, and their love for each other, really. And oh boy, it is so telling that when she thinks of duty, she thinks of Arthur, when she thinks of passion, she thinks of Mordred, she thinks of love 
it's Lancelot all the way. And at the end, there's that little thing of like, you know, she's not with Mordred. Mordred's written off to like camp or whatever. Um, and she's not with Arthur except in name really as his king. And that's more for the kingdom. But she looks at Lancelot and she sees a future there. She's like, yeah, yeah, Lancelot. <laughs> like that's that's my future. We'll see what happens. And as long as I'm by doing what's right for Camelot and also being by Lancelot's side. Lancelot, who is the one who gets me, I I will be happy. I will I will look forward to the future. So I think that's so telling of just how Lancelot is the most viable romantic and most compatible romantic interest, while at the same time being her best friend as well. And even if they don't get together romantically, they're always going to be super close. Um, I guess you could say they are soulmates um, in some ways, because she doesn't have that with Arthur, and she doesn't have that with Mordred, that feeling of just utter like completion when you are with the other person. So that's what she is with Lancelot. And I would also like to just talk about how great that cave scene was with her versing off against Merlin and the horrifying realization, the horrifying truth coming out that the Lady of the Lake, um, basically she had d different parts of herself, right? Like she's not just one entity. And one of the parts wanted to be human so badly because this was a great theme throughout the book, like that idea of like, if you are invincible, if you're a Merlin or if you're a god, then you never really get to be strong because you're powerful all the time, which means you have no weaknesses. And that means that you can never actually be strong because to be strong means to push past your weakness and push past the frailty that we often have, especially as humans. But gods can't do that. So the lady of the lake, I guess you could say, she wants, she wanted to be human and she went to Merlin and Merlin basically got this girl and showed her, tricked her, showed her a future where she could supposedly be with Lancelot. And the girl wanted it so badly. She wanted to be anything but herself, which is just a devastating thought, that idea of you look in the mirror and you look at your reflection in the lake and you're like, yeah, I don't want this. Like, I hate myself. I want to change if I can. And if you can change me, I'll do it. But she didn't know what she was really signing up for, which was that the Lady of the Lake drowned her, killed her. And drowning is not an easy death. It's very painful. Um, so she killed her and took over her body. But Merlin, of course, took control of her and gave her amnesia, gave her the sphere of water. And so that's who Guinevere is. And Guinevere realizes she has to struggle with a lot of this book. With that idea that, um, as I mentioned in the beginning paragraphs, that she is living because someone else's life was so violently taken from them and then given to her. And she is in the body of someone who, whose soul, whose personality has just departed. And that is an incredible thing to work through. Um, that idea of like, you have been given life, but at what cost? And you have been given life at the cost of somebody else. And, you know, like, what does that mean for your relationships? What does that mean for, for your own self-worth? Because everybody has value as a person, but also you got to keep living. Like, you know, and that the people that Guinevere got to know throughout the trip, throughout the trilogy they love her because she was her she wasn't she wasn't they don't see her as like a parasite or as someone who has 
invaded and violently taken this body from this young girl they just see her as her and they're like it's really fucking sad that that, that, that happened it truly is but i love you and i want you to keep on living because the person that i got to knew got to know that was you 100 and you know if it hadn't been that girl it would have been another girl if it hadn't been you merlin would have found another way to screw some other girls and women over and that's just the fact and like the fact that you are trying to stop him and successfully so and she even calls her calls merlin out on this and it's like you always fucking sacrifice everybody else don't you like you never sacrifice yourself you don't make the sacrifices and you think you're so righteous you think you're doing the right thing and meanwhile i'm over here going through this torment of stealing another girl's body but you are sacrificing so many bodies to make your perfect king to make arthur perfect and you're not letting him be human and you just want power so badly because you think you deserve it because you think you're right and that great moment of like she destroys merlin because she pushes all of the pain that he's caused onto other women and girls onto him and oh he can't handle it like he he actually begs for her to stop because he can't handle all of the pain of and also this is just the pain of one girl basically of the real guinevere or of the guinevere whose body was taken originally all of her desire all of her pain onto merlin and and yeah he just cannot handle it any of it and just that irony of like you sacrifice without knowing the true pain of the sacrifice that was such a great moment honestly hands down best part of this book that was the excalibur curse we are going to move on Ooh, 10 minutes excellent i kept it pretty short we are going to move on to we are going to move on to my last good book of january which was good rich people by eliza jane brazier brazier okay um a fun thriller that nails most of its commentary so this book is a biting critique of wealth that made me laugh so many times in the first half of it. It's perfect for fans like Ready or Not, and is a fun thriller that nails most of its commentary. The first half was just chef's kiss, great, but falters near the end, which isn't very satisfying, but it does make sense. We follow two women, Demi and Lila, who live completely opposite lives. Demi is homeless and stumbles into Lila's life one day through a terrible accident while Lila has married into the ridiculously wealthy family of her husband, Graham. Both women become embroiled in the family's twisted game in which Graham and his mother, Margot, are set on ruining Demi's life. But Perhaps they've been off more than they can chew with this girl. As Demi tries to protect herself and her secret, she and Lila have to decide whether they're enemies or unlikely allies. I really enjoyed the perspectives of both women and never felt impatient to switch back to one or the other. They both bring a unique insight into the situation and are fascinating reflections of how two people can interpret the same conversation or invent. Lila is hilariously vain and selfish in the way that really only rich people can be, but there's a loneliness and self-awareness to her that makes her perspective bearable. Here are a couple moments that stood out to me and which are darkly humorous in ways I did not expect. Sometimes I am scared by how beautiful I am. Every inch of me is buffed and primed. My face hangs exactly right. My muscles are taut and organized. I am scared because I don't want to lose it. 
I was forced to shoplift, designer bags, sell family heirlooms, steal credit cards. I almost had to get a job. It was inhuman. I don't know what accent I'm putting on, but it's happening, okay? What I hate about people, what I really hate, is that they can make up their own minds about you. If I want a jacket, I can buy it. The jacket doesn't have to want me back, but a person does. Yeah, so. But Demi's perspective serves as a nice contrast to Lila's. She lives, she's lived her entire life watching rich people leave their messes behind. So when she's faced with the game that this family plays, she thinks she knows better, and she does for a little bit. I really enjoyed her biting insight into the wealthy and her slow induction into the glamorous lives of Lila and Graham. I hate to admit it, and this is a quote um, from the book from her perspective. I hate to admit it, but I always thought rich people glowed because they were better. And that's how they ended up rich. They were cleaner, brighter. I never realized you could buy things to make you glow. End quote. It's a shame that she does get tempted by Graham, who is apparently super good looking, and begins believing in the rhetoric of the wealthy, which is that she earned it, that some working class and poor people have about the uber rich. So that's pretty realistic. Like, Side note, like, I've heard working class people being like, Elon Musk, yeah, Jeff Bezos, they deserve it, you know, if I had money, it's like, you're never gonna get that money. I don't know what to tell you, George, you're never going to get that money, okay? Like, it's inherited wealth, or it's wealth built on the exploitation of working class people like yourself, and, and poor people, of course. However, the commentary on the corruption of wealth and the lie of meritocracy isn't fully fleshed out or developed in Demi's story. Her relationship with Michael, another homeless person who moves in with her temporarily, is the most interesting one to me because it's a fascinating dynamic between someone who's pretty much made it versus someone still trapped in poverty. The only difference between the two was luck. It's a shame that she sees him as an enemy for most of the story, and that the narrative doesn't fully utilize or humanize him. I also really wanted more insight into the games that the family has played in the past. It would have really showed how evil and indifferent to suffering they were and racked up the tension. As it is, I never felt particularly intimidated by the family or worried for Demi, Demi like I was for Grace and Ready or Not. Besides the commentary, the setting and descriptions of the house and family garden really stood out to me. The fact that Lila's mother-in-law has a garden with nine levels to mimic the levels of hell is hilarious and a perfectly absurd representation of what these people find amusing. Similarly, the guest house with where Demi lives being physically and symbolically underneath Lila and Graham's home is great. Little moments like these that show the ridiculous world of the uber-rich really made me root for Demi and Michael. Overall, Good Rich People is a darkly humorous look into the psychological games played by those who can afford to lose anything and a woman who becomes entangled in their twisted worldview. There's a hollow ring to the ending, but it was a fun ride nevertheless. Yes, so we are going to move on. I don't have a lot more to say about Good Rich People. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the not-so-great books that I read for January. And we will start off with Anatomy by Dana Schwartz. So I really think the title of this book review is that it lacks a heart at its center. So Anatomy, a love story by Dana Schwartz isn't very good as a love story. And it's best when focused on Hazel's attempt to enter the medical field. I really enjoyed the little facets of historical knowledge sprinkled in this book and wish there had been more because that period of time is fascinating. 
I'll say this off the bat so you don't have to read the whole review, but I disliked this book and it wasn't for me. Unfortunately, there wasn't much chemistry between the two leads, Hazel and Jack, to get invested in. Their relationship went from nothing to kissing in an open grave very quickly, which is one of the least romantic settings I've ever read for a book. By the end of the book, I still felt as if their relationship was forced. I couldn't see what they saw in each other and couldn't imagine a future for a couple that has barely talked about anything meaningful in their lives. It's hard to root for a couple that doesn't even seem to know one another. And there's plenty of meaningful stuff they could talk about. First of all, the class difference. It's mentioned a few times but is inconsequential otherwise, despite it being a major factor in their future. And the ending completely erases any tension or interesting development that could have worked there. Hazel has so much ambition and a complicated relationship with her mother, but is never vulnerable about it with Jack. I was just waiting for a moment for the two to sit down and talk about feeling unseen by the people around them, but seeing each other. Jack himself is as bland as unsliced bread, but he must have feelings, thoughts, and dreams of being more than a resurrection man. It's too bad we never got to know what they are. To be honest... How are you a body snatcher yet so boring, my guy? As for Hazel herself, I do like that her ambition can get the best of her sometimes. Her desire to be famous in medicine could have made for some interesting moral quandaries or tension between her and Jack. She does suffer from the same problem as him though in that there's not much to her beside ambition. She did make me laugh a few times like a ranting about the point of a promenade. Anatomy truly shines when it gives us a look into the brutal world of physicians back in those pre-anesthesia times. It's bloody and gross and heavy with the pain of the poor people that helped doctors further their studies. Surprisingly, the body snatching parts themselves were uninteresting compared to these parts, and I would have loved to read a book that really took advantage of that gothic atmosphere. The mystery behind the missing people is rather boring and pretty simple. You'll recognize the villain as soon as you're introduced to them. I think the mystery would have been more successful with a red herring of sorts or by deepening Hazel's relationship with the villain. That would have given the ending more emotional impact. As it is, the final confrontation between Hazel and the antagonist is incredibly underwhelming and the villain monologue was painfully dull. I mean, overall, I enjoyed Anatomy most when it wasn't focused on the romance. I wish I had dug more into Jack's world, leaned into its gothic undertones, and created more complexity in its world and characters. That period of time truly was interesting, and I'm sure lots of people were drawn into the book because of the great premise. It's just a shame that this book isn't missing a few important organs. Yeah, so spoiler alert here. I truly hated the villain of this book. So it turns out that the villain is, and there's this... I'm glad that they didn't make the um, man with the glass eye, the one who was so obviously, you know, creepy or whatever. Um, I'm glad that they didn't make him the outright villain, first of all, because that would have been lookism, that would have been bad because he has a glass eye. And, you know, too often those kinds of people are like portrayed as villainous just because of how they look. The villain that they ended up going with was so dull. And it turns out that it's not the glass eye guy, but it is the other doctor that he commonly works with, who is a big pioneer in the field of medicine. And it turns out, all of a sudden, you know what we're gonna do in this book? Introduce immortality. Yeah, immortality, it's a thing. Not in like 
the way of Frankenstein where, you know, it's like sci, a little bit of sci-fi and horror mixed up in there of like the, the idea of like the lightning of electricity reanimating a body in it in of itself is not like I feel like it's difficult to describe because in Frankenstein right like the electricity reanimating the body was more of like a smaller part of the story and also it makes sense because back in those days electricity people honestly thought that was what was going on with electricity right and that was one of the fears of electricity being used to reanimate corpses and I find that just and that's also like small smaller science experiment when you compare with freaking immortality so i think the immortality part was such a big mistake especially because there's no mention really of anything sort of magical magical or like to that degree in this book except maybe like there is this um mysterious like liquid that can put people to sleep or whatever and dulls the pain so you can perform surgeries without the person actually have to be in supreme pain and awake i was like oh that's just like um anesthesia right like modern day anesthesia sure i believe that that's very close to the reality of medicine that we have today and it did have to get invented at some time so even if it isn't exactly how anesthesia works i my mind like parallels that enough but immortality that is so far out of left field and so the fact that the villain is this doctor who oh whoa we're doing the cullen thing of the doctor in modern times looks exactly like his great 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 grandfather who first was also a pioneer and made all of these great advancements in science and guess what he looks exactly like him because he is him because he's immortal and that is the plot twist and <sighs> i feel bad because i'm making this out to be like super terrible and it's not a super terrible book overall but i was just so frustrated with um with this plot twist and how it was done and just the fact that he was so bland as well, almost as bland, dare I say, as Jack himself, in that he, the reason he's doing all this is for science, for the greater good, you know, because he has nothing left in his life, his wife and his children are all dead, he doesn't get the point of human life, and he will do anything to advance science. And he sees his ambition in Hazel, and there's a tiny moment at the end where he actually offers her immortality, he's like, you're never gonna know how to make this, I'm never gonna tell you, but here it is, if you want it, you could do great things, you could actually be my apprentice, and we could do great things together, and you could carry on your own legacy it would be much more interesting if they had already built up a previous relationship and if maybe he was mentoring her all along and he was super supportive but guess what he's not super supportive of you being the first woman being a physician because he actually <laughs> is i was gonna say is a feminist but he kind of is i guess because he like really supports you and like you know thinks that you're amazing or whatever he support he's supporting you because as well he sees that like sliver of cruelty and that sliver of ambition that's willing to go the distance and do really messed up things maybe and build your career and your legacy on a on bodies and you re you realize at the end that this mentor figure who has believed in you so much and become this father figure for you has had these machinations all along and is really the genius that you worship so much is really just cruelty disguised with intelligence i think that would be so much more interesting 
um, and that would make for such a more emotional impact by the end. The ending sucks. Like, I'm just gonna say it outright. Like, the ending where she goes to confront him, and this is after he's kidnapped Jack and he's about to kill Jack, and Hazel has sort of weirdly fights against him but doesn't kill him. Jack takes the fall for it and Jack gets executed. But don't worry because Hazel gave Jack the immortality potion so Jack's alive by the end. And so, um, but Hazel goes to confront the doctor one last time and she doesn't try to kill him. She doesn't really do anything. She's just like, hmm, so you did all of this. I'm not like you. I'm different. I won't be inhuman or whatever. I'm just like, fucking stab this bitch, man. <laughs> like, please. I freaking... <laughs> I can't take this anymore and I want you to do something please like like you know like please try and she doesn't do that she doesn't try to clever one up him or like get him caught out or even blackmail him by being like like I'm going to make it so that you can never work in medicine or that people like know that immortality exists or that you were a fraud or whatever i'm gonna defame your legacy since that's so important to you in some way just a little thing like that which would be you know so satisfying at the end and the perfect book mark to all of the pain that he's caused and that doesn't happen at all they just have a talk and at the end it's like oh he's staring out the window at the snow or whatever like feeling sad about his dead family oh she leaves in the shadow of him like casts i don't know some figure and just like are you trying to make me feel bad or feel like this man is more complicated or complex like during the last few chapters of this book what are you doing like i don't know so yeah i hated that it was just terrible um i'm really glad i listened to this on audiobook because the narrator made things a lot more bearable i think honestly if i was reading this as a book i would have not finished this i would not have been engrossed in it but because i was at work and i could listen to the audiobook i was just like okay i'm gonna listen to this sometimes i got interrupted and i just spaced out and didn't hear any a lot but then i came back and i was like oh it's still boring okay cool so that was anatomy love story by Nina schwartz and we are gonna move on to the last book okay i promise this is the last book the hunting wives by may cobb which was dare i say yes i dare say worse than anatomy and this was oh, oh man okay i'm gonna just go into it so the hunting wives by may cobb an off-putting soap opera with little mystery if you like well weaves murder mysteries that you won't see coming and that'll keep you to the edge of your seat, avoid The Hunting Wives by Maycop. But if you want a soap opera in book form with plenty of scandal and dramatic revelations, this is that book. Side note, it's not a fun soap opera though, okay? So The Hunting Wives was not for me and I was pretty disappointed with the characters and the resolution at the end. Also, side note, I feel like I should stop saying like, The Hunting Wives, this was not for me. I can I can just say this was a bad book. Yeah. I'm gonna do that from now on. The book cover is pretty cool and is what drew me in, but alas. The premise of bored housewives in a small town meeting up every week to go shoot things and then having a teenage girl end up dead one day in their hangout spot is intriguing. It should have been much more interesting than what this book was. I actually didn't fully hate Sophie, our protagonist, but I didn't feel anything for her either. I think that she was meant to be unlikable and that she successfully does have to face repercussions for her actions in the second half of it. However, the writing didn't convey the adrenaline or the temptation of the bad choices she made as well as the 
she could have. So there really wasn't a struggle when she considered the options in front of her. Her life is also just perfect, so there's not really any chinks that could be exploited or that explained why she rushed into the choices that she did. Writing some in like her marriage with her husband could have made her actions more believable, made readers root for her more, or just understand her better. It's tricky to write characters that seem to have perfect lives on the surface, and honestly have rather shallow problems in their lives that they fix with affairs and other typical small town big lie stuff. In my opinion, you can go for unexpected complexity, but just have a fun time with it and give the reader the drama they're looking for. The characters don't necessarily have to be complex, but they do have to be fun in some way. The women in this book were neither. The other four women in the club all work as characters on paper, but are pretty underdeveloped. Even Margot, the head queen herself, is like every other mean girl you typically see in the genre, without any complexity or particular viciousness that would make it fun to watch her. And the two other women in the club, you dig into them and they're just as dull as the rest of the characters in the book, even though they are potentially the most interesting, and they're just there for plot reasons. The Hunting Wives reminds me of a simple favor and its failure to really delve into the dynamics of click and in its troublesome depiction of bisexuality. I will warn readers going into this that it's not a great depiction of it, and there are 40-year-olds sleeping with 18-year-olds. Neither topic is handled well and really just made this go from a kind of fun soap opera if boring book to just plain bad. You can read better than this if you're itching for a murder and obsessive female friendships. So, and then I put in a, a list of sort of dangerous female friendships or click books on the blog. Like, this book was bad. Like I said, 40-year-olds sleeping with 18-year-olds and the bisexuality and how she cheat. The main character, Sophie, cheats on her husband with a teenage boy and then later cheats on him after he's found out and he's like, okay, we might get divorced, get out, bye. And she cheats on him this time with Margot. Yeah, just like, oh man, None of these people are interesting or particularly fun. It's not even like a fun disaster <laughs> to watch. So yeah, but those were my books of January. If you've any, if you've read any of these books, you can comment or you can at me on Twitter at Shabeata X I A B E A T A, or you can find the link to my blog in the description of this podcast or in the episode and just comment there. I really like doing this and I hope to do this monthly just because talking about these books like really is good for making me um, get more eloquent I guess or just articulate my feelings about these books because there, there was a lot actually that I didn't put in most of these reviews because I typically try to keep them spoiler free. So yeah. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time for another episode of Solo Leveling. Bye!